Hello, and welcome to Theories of Change, a podcast about climate change and the various strategies and approaches to addressing this global challenge. I'm your host, Sarah Ladislaw. Each month, we will talk with experts about how to get from where we are today to a more manageable climate for future generations. The most frustrating thing is maybe not that we don't get it all together, but the frustrating thing is that we have all the, the options, we have all the knowledge, we have the technology to change. We just need to change the way we govern ourselves on this planet and that there are options to make a much better future. Today, we're joined by Alexander Verbeek. Alexander is the founder of the Institute for Planetary Security. Alexander Verbeek is a Dutch environmentalist, public speaker, diplomat, and former strategic policy advisor to the Netherlands Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Over the past 30 years, he's worked on international security, humanitarian, and geopolitical risk issues, and the linkage to Earth's accelerating environmental crisis. Currently, Alexander is policy director at the Environment and Development Resource Center in Brussels. He also works internationally as an expert speaker and advisor on planetary change to academia, global NGOs, private firms, and international organizations. I talk with Alexander about climate security and his focus on the security and economic consequences of climate change, and we look ahead to what he sees on the horizon for 2021. Take a listen. Alexander, thank you so much for joining us on Theories of Change today. Yeah, nice to, uh, to join you today. I want to start this conversation the way we do every conversation, just to orient our listeners. When you think of the issue of global climate change and where we are today relative to where we need to go, how do you describe that situation? There's a lot of feelings. It's frightening and it's frustrating. Frightening because of you know the existential threats that, that climate change poses. And we, we all live on this very small planet. There's no other planet where we can go to, although some people believe that we should move to Mars or something. It's just us. It's just this planet. If you see it from a distance, it's so small. And then we see all over the planet exponential growth in our consumption, in our production, in our demands, in the number of people, in the number of waste that we produce. And so I could give you a graph with like, you know, dozens of graphs that grow exponentially. And the only graph that stays horizontal is the size of this planet. And that's basically what what the Club of Rome said in the early 70s, they said, you know, somewhere in the next 100 years, we're going to reach the limits of growth. And that is where we are. So the word growth is essential to, to understanding what is going wrong and what we should change. We should at least find a new way to growth or we should stop growth, but we, we have to change our system. So, yeah, I think it's frightening because this is such a daunting task that we have never, ever faced before. And it takes so long to get used to that, you know, after whatever 10,000 years of human civilization, suddenly we have to do things differently. And it is an existential threat. And one of the frustrating things is that most people don't see how frightening it really is. Uh, people talk about, you know, that it's uh, getting a bit too hot in the summers and that they regret, you know, the plight of the koalas and so. And of course, all that is true. But there's so much more that we should be afraid of. We should be alarmed. I mean, people sometimes still call me an alarmist. Yes, I am alarmed. I'm really frightened for what's going on. The most frustrating thing is maybe not that we don't get it all together. But the frustrating thing is that we have all the options. We have all the knowledge. We have the technology to change. We just need to change the way we, we, we govern ourselves on this planet. And that there are options to make 
a much better future, you know, with more jobs, with cleaner air, with much less climate change, which is more equal, more fair. So it's all there. It's been described by the scientists and the economists and by everybody that knows about this stuff for so many times. So it's a question of leadership in many ways and convincing the people and they should vote for leaders that actually bring us the solutions that we need. It's very interesting because you pose a somewhat central challenge, which is, you know, if we need to change leadership to be able to deal with the issue of climate change, people would have to be motivated by what you know, what you see, why you're alarmed, but they don't. And we had an earlier version of this podcast with Catherine Hayhoe, who's a climate scientist, has done a lot to communicate climate science to folks. Why do you think people have such a hard time connecting with, you know, what you see and you look at in the data and the facts about uh, the trajectories that we're seeing in Earth's natural systems? Why do you think that's hard for people to connect to on a human level? You should ask the psychologist more than, than me, <laughs> I think one of the things is that it's got so many elements that make it such a wicked problem. I mean, it's uh, first of all, it's slow moving. It's a bit like, you know, two people visit a doctor. The first one has a cut in his finger and it's bleeding and feels that this is an emergency and he's the most important patient that should be treated. And the other person has all kinds of vague complaints. Today he's actually feeling a bit better, but those complaints are slowly. And the urgency is given to, you know, the guy with the cuts in his finger. And that's the same here, you know. The urgency is the breaking news. It's one incident. There's an urgency with COVID because, you know, that is a thing that will play for one or two years. And it's, of course, a terrible problem. But there are solutions. We can beat it. And, you know, people are aware of it. Even there, a lot of people deny it. But there we did act because we had to be fast. Climate change moves slowly. You see it happening mostly in other places, more than in your own place. It happens in faraway places like the Arctic, where we don't come, so we see the pictures. Added to that is a lot of confusion created by the fossil fuel industry and others that have an interest in quickly earning a lot of money, but don't have an interest in preserving the planet for next generations. They've been extremely effective, comparable to the kind of tobacco industry campaign that smoking would not be dangerous. The solutions is that once you have people convinced that we need to act, it's easy to say that somebody else should act first. And that is maybe a difference with smoking. You know, you should not smoke yourself because you get lung cancer. Whereas, you know, if I will take the next uh, flight to Hawaii to lay in the sun or not, then it's, well, if I don't do it, somebody else will sit in that plane. And it's same with countries, you know, if, if we now start to change our energy systems, why should we make that investment and not somebody else? So it, it got a lot of these elements where it's easy to say that you don't have to act immediately. The urgency is easily denied and so is the severity of the threat because it's so slow moving. Can you describe your phrase planetary security and why it helps describe your approach to thinking about and dealing with climate change? Yeah, I started to use it in, in 2014 when I was at Yale University because I needed a word to, to capture a few things and I couldn't find another word. What was mostly used was climate and security. The problem there was that climate is not covering everything. I mean, climate change is maybe the biggest threat of all, but it's closely followed by, let's say, the loss of nature, biodiversity loss. And there's also other aspects of how we are changing the planet that is threatening our security. Think about access to resources and, and water, energy, food challenges and pollution. So I wanted something that covered the word or the process that because we are changing the planet, our security is threatened. And it's not only security in the sense of, you know, your human security for yourself, or for your family, but also security between nations. And I use this word to convince the Dutch Minister of Foreign Affairs that we would need 
annual meeting, the first annual global meeting on these climate security, planetary security issues, where we didn't only bring together the experts, even that didn't exist. There was not an annual meeting for the experts in what was then called climate and security. But I especially wanted it as a meeting where the experts were meeting the policymakers, the diplomats, the military experts and development experts, so that their knowledge was shared with the ones that should make a policy. Again, it's all about governance. Maybe a last element to mention is that, I mean, it's not new that people were also going to look at biodiversity and resources, etc. I mean, we were worried about those things before, but that you look more holistically at it. So these are not separate things. It's not that some people look at climate change and others look at, at the other problems. They will impact increasingly. They will impact each other. And that can either be, let's say, physically. So take, for instance, this year, take Australia. I mean, there was first the heat, which led to the drought, and the drought led to the forest fires. But then this all added up. Then when it started to rain, the ground was so dry that it didn't absorb the water. So the flooding was directly related to all the other problems. Or it can be more, uh, let's say, in, in our society, these things can stack up. So you have those forest fires in Australia, but you also have them in California. They've always been there, but they were seasonal. So there were, for instance those airplanes that you use to to throw water on the on the forest fires i don't know the words in english for those planes they they were used both in california in the summer and then again in australia when it was summer in australia well you can't do that anymore so that's typically one of those let's say societal consequences where of of these compounded risks of the changing security situation on our planet so hence planetary security has just a bigger word for everything that's changing and, and threatening our security over the years that you've been hosting the Planetary Security Initiative, how have you seen the dialogue around climate security or planetary security evolve? You know, I, I remember early in the days when I first started working on climate change, there was a real concern in the environmental community about over-securitizing the issue, right? If you made climate a hard security issue, then it wouldn't get dealt with in the way that was supposed to be. But this interdisciplinary approach that you are talking about, has the community of folks thinking about planetary security from your vantage point grown? You know, how has it evolved over the years that you've been doing it? Yeah, I believe the community has grown. There's still a relatively small nucleus of researchers that really work on, on these issues full-time. And it's just, I don't know, depending on how you define full-time working, but it could be anywhere between a few dozen or, or maximum a few hundred that really work on this. I think the effect has been by by this meeting and the meetings that followed and also other meetings that are now taking place in this field. I think the the main result has been of all these activities, not just planetary security, that policymakers realize now more that there's this kind of threat is taking place and that you need to look at the big problems in the world through the lens of climate change. So for instance, Sweden did a campaign that in United Nations offices in New York, there's now a number of people that are specifically there to look at all these problems that the UN is dealing with, with climate change in mind, so that you, instead of dealing with climate change as a separate issue, that you that you deal with, with everything that is related to climate change and all its consequences. So I think there we made progress. On the other hand, in the sense of really integrating it in all your policies, I don't think there's many countries that are far ahead. I think a very good example there is uh, what the incoming Biden administration is doing by taking a very senior 
politician, John Kerry, making him the climate envoy, but also giving him a seat in the National Security Council. And so he's, let's say, a minister level. I don't know exactly how you define it in the U.S. I presume that he has direct access uh, to the president. And somebody there was a dedicated team so, so high in the top of, of the government organization. That is exactly how you should integrate these issues. So that's with each and every decision that you take, somebody makes sure that, that there's this climate element. And it's not just only security. It's not just, let's say, the defense sector. It's also how you build your infrastructure, decisions that you take in, in, in the field of healthcare, there's um, education, etc. I cannot think of one ministry that will not be affected by, by the impacts of, of climate change. You know, so you mentioned it's not just the defense sector, it's not just the government either. I mean, what do you see as a role here for the private sector, or other players in the economy? Do they play a big role in your view about how to bring together the multidimensional nature of, uh, of planetary security? Are they bringing solutions to the table that enable policymakers to have better choices in front of them? What's your interaction with the private sector been? Well, for, first of all, let's say the business community is just as widely diverse as, let's say, countries in the world. You know, let's say the, the range from uh, the North Koreas to the, to the New Zealand kind of countries, you have the same with companies. I won't mention the bad guys here, but the oil industry is a good one to start with. There's, of course, amazing companies that are really progressive and working towards sustainability. And if you then look at the, the security aspects, normally business is not there to take care of, let's say, international security. Business might deliver the parts and the tools and the weapons that you might need to fight a war, but that's not their interest. But on the other hand, if you look at the human security aspect, that is typically where responsible companies have taken up their activities and developed a very good initiatives. So, for instance, the beverage industry, if you look at the beer brewers or at Coca-Cola kind of initiatives, they've been criticized in the past. Coca-Cola is a good example, for instance, for using up too much water in a community that needs that water. And they've learned their lessons, sometimes painfully. And these kind of companies are now often leading in developing proper water policies, not just that, that they themselves have enough water to produce their beer or their, or their drinks, but also helping out the wider community with their knowledge that they have. And these are these kind of examples, and there's, there's many by really small companies, you know, very local, all the way up to the big multinationals. And so that aspect of security, the human security, making sure that, you know, families can live and have an income and lead a normal life. I think many companies are taking up that responsibility. And, and as consumers, we can help by buying our goods with those kind of companies. So, you know, don't order your stuff at Amazon, where we know how, you know, the people that work there are treated and how the income that is gained, how that is divided between the top and the rest. But buy local, which is also good from, let's say, a environmental perspective. You don't need all the transportation through the air or over land or with shipping. Buy local, support your local community. And it's often better too, you know, it's, it's more fresh. It's just being produced by, you know, your own neighborhood where also the norms of how you treat the goods uh, and, and the food, especially that you're buying, how, how that is taken care of, which you often don't know, it comes from further abroad. I want to ask you both what 
concerns you the most and then what gives you the most hope in the work that you do? I mean, very few people, as you said, look across all of the expected climate impacts and sort of assess our readiness, you know, across the globe for being able to deal with them. Are there issues that in your mind, whether it's sea level rise or droughts or whatever the case may be, that you feel like we're actually pretty close to being able to manage those impacts? Like we're going to find a solution or we're going to be able to, as a global community, deal with those situations and others where you're just deeply concerned because it doesn't seem like we're going to be able to manage a certain type of crises. Because you mentioned before the cascading issue, right, which I think is a very good point, right? We don't experience these impacts on a one-on-one basis, but when we're thinking about how to you know, address each of them, I, it would be really interesting to know what you think is the more difficult versions versus the ones you think we, we can make progress on. I'm afraid the more difficult ones are winning here. Uh, there's, there's just so many more examples of what I'm really, really scared of on the bigger scale. So first of all, are we going to make it that if we want to stay on a path of, of one and a half degrees warming, will we manage in the next uh, 10 years of this decade to go down 7% in emissions each year. We managed this year by measures which had nothing to do with climate change, but everything to do with COVID, of course. Are we able to do that? And if we are not, I see a lot of hopeful developments now, but I doubt if we're going to go down worldwide 7% everywhere. So then we will see more warming. That is the relatively easy calculation. Anybody that knows a little bit about climate science can calculate how much tons of CO2 go in the atmosphere and how much temperature will go up. So if the temperature will go up more and we end up at something like two and a half, three, maybe even four degrees at the end of this century, what will then happen? You pass tipping points and you know, tipping point, point that you pass that you will never go back to it. If let's say the Northern white rhino dies out, it will never go back, even if you start cooling again. So we'll, we'll have, we'll pass tipping points. We'll, you get these positive feedback loops, things like the thawing of the permafrost and all the methane that is being released. And these kind of processes are much more difficult to calculate. So that the melting of the ice sheets is going faster than was predicted by the scientists. So the system is more dynamic and then, so it's uh, reacting more to the climate uh, increase than they had expected. That is a scary development. And then what will happen to society? So let's say the, the Arctic is melting, the, the jet stream is increasingly changing its course, the currents in, in the oceans are changing, which might for Europe, for instance, mean that it, it might actually cool down and for the Arctic that it's heating up faster. So you'll get more droughts, you'll get sea level rise. I come from the Netherlands where my house is is below sea level. What is going to happen to all these places? Well, for the Netherlands, I'm not too worried uh, for my lifetime. But in places like the big deltas in the world, think about Bangladesh or Vietnam or think about Egypt, for instance. You never hear about Egypt in these things. But Egypt is basically, it's a huge country, but it's just, you know, it's... It's an empty desert. There's a, a long river, and at the end, there's a delta. And that's where everybody lives. That's where the economy is, where the, where the people are, where the agriculture takes place. It is a delta because it is flat and close to the sea. That's, that's why you get the delta. The river starts to meander. And uh, I'm a geographer. <laughs> and uh, so that is really low-lying. And then if, if the water starts to rise there, I mean, look at the city like Alexandria, the risks that they take there. So I think... Sea level rise will become bigger and bigger, certainly after, let's say, uh, 2050 in, in about 30 years from now. We will see much, much more of that. But in the meantime, we see the horrible forest fires, one of the first things we see. We see the melting of the Arctic. So there's now 60% less 
sea ice in the Arctic Ocean than the average of the past 40 years, which was already a higher average because it was relatively recent than, let's say, the past century. So there's suddenly, from a security perspective, there's a new ocean to defend for Canada and the US to, to the ones that are on the other side. I think what we will mainly see, we will see an enormous amount of destruction of biodiversity. The forest in the Amazon, uh, you might see that the three big tropical forest areas, so the Amazon and, and the center of Africa and in Asia, that they become net carbon emitters instead of the lungs of the world that they are supposed to be. I could go on and on and on. So where do I see hope? Well, the past few weeks gave me hope. I think this year has been a complete nightmare. The only positive thing you could say is that it's a kind of wake-up call to the world that you know, if you just keep destroying our natural habitats and, and therefore four species to live together that normally don't live together, you will get more pandemics and we've seen how damaging it is. We've also seen the resilience that as a global community that we have, that we've never ever seen a vaccine developed for a coronavirus. It has never been done before. And now within a year, uh, many companies were able to do this. So technology gives, gives hope in a way. Um, but I think also recently looking at the, the Climate Ambition Summit that took place last Saturday, where you see that EU is stepping up. We know that uh, the US is waiting for 20 January to also do their part, and that gives a lot of hope. But even a country like China, you know, norm normally not mentioned as a champion on climate change, and I still don't want to call them that way. China also takes up their responsibility and is, uh, is stepping up. Or a country like India, let's say the ambition thinks that a country of Denmark is doing, you cannot expect that from a vast completely different country like India with, with different background, but but also India is, is really doing their utmost to, to work on this. So I think that is a difference from, it's, it's exactly five years ago now that we agreed on the Paris Agreement. I think you can say now that after five years, we lost it a bit in the beginning, but I think right now there's hopeful signs that governments do get it. Uh, and that people vote for it. I, I think that's also a thing that the, the movement that, that Greta Thunberg has started with the, the Fridays for Future movement, I think she has done an amazing thing in really mobilizing the young generation to tell my generation that basically we've done everything wrong and, and that it's time to change our acts. It's a completely different world than it used to be in the past. You know, It used to be that in the past, the youngs were rebelling against their parents and now they're actually teaching us what to do. <laughs> You and I were in a conversation the other day where you made some really interesting points about the role of information and how information can be an enabler of better climate policy and, and quite frankly, being able to tell what the impacts of a changing climate are going to be. Can you talk a little bit about your view on how information plays a big role in, in getting a harness on this planetary security issue? Yeah, information as well as disinformation, as I said before, I mean, there's been so much fake news, you would call it nowadays, has been shared for decades of making sure that people don't take action. So one of the things that I've been focusing on as, as an individual is doing my best to share information on social, me and social media and mainly on Twitter. And that has grown. I've been active now for 10 years and I, I got now something like more than 350,000 people that follow me with the kind of information that I share. And so I do it on two accounts. One is planetary security, planetary underscore sec, SEC, from the days that you have to keep the name still short on Twitter. That is more just very serious information about what's going on on the planet, new research, that kind of thing. And that is more communicating to a group of people that are already convinced 
that this is a very serious problem and that are looking for, you know, solutions and facts, et cetera. And the other account that is bigger is the one on, on my name as Alex underscore for big. Um, there I aim for a wider audience, people that are not necessarily, let's say, environmentalists or, or experts or so. So that is it's much more personal. It is more full with, I think the, the majority of information there is more showing the beauty of our planet. What is at stake? And then maybe one in five or one in 10 tweets that I send out is actually a warning like, hey guys, this is this beautiful planet, but actually this is what is going on and, and what you should do. And it's more focused on solutions and what you can do yourself. So that is what I'm doing on communicating. I think there's a task for everyone to do their share. This is not easy, let's say, dinner conversation during your Christmas dinner. You know, you, you have this aunt or brother or whomever sitting next to you, and then you're not going to talk about climate change. But it does help to, you know, at other moments, bring up the issue. I mean, why, why are people still eating meat? I stopped eating meat long, long time ago for environmental reasons. I used to like it a lot. Only later I got actually more concerned about the plight of, of, of the animals. I'm fascinated by myself that I didn't see before how brutally we are treating those animals. I somehow shut my eyes for it. Now I think it's just a horrible idea that I live in countries where not far away from where I live, these kind of things are taking place. I think everybody has the task to raise this issue and convince other people how serious this is. And I, I do believe this is quickly taking on and so the communication is getting better we we don't see much anymore of the complete climate deniers it's more that they trying to hit the brake and say you know yeah there is climate change but it's, it's not so bad but in that sense we are we are winning but yeah the question is are we still on time to really avoid the worst of climate change it's never too late but um it's 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 getting really really urgent and i wish we would have started 30 years ago when we knew exactly what we know now um, that, that we should stop the production of greenhouse gases. So this leads to one of the last two questions we ask every guest on theories of change, which is, you know, you just described how complicated or difficult it can be to talk about climate change with people, you know, in your own families or uh, in other places that maybe don't share your views. You know, I wanted to ask you, how do you go about those conversations when you're talking to somebody that doesn't think about climate change in the way that you do? And then particularly, and I hope you don't mind, because you've described yourself as, you know, a climate change sort of alarmist, right? You're alarmed. And there is a bit of a backlash to that, right? I mean, the idea that being alarmed can be making you feel defeatist, right? Or that there's something that's an overreaction or, or that type of thing. I mean, how do you work in your daily life when you encounter somebody that maybe it's just not something that they deal with all the time? It's not in their daily frame to think about climate change. How do you start talking to them about the issue? Yeah, it very much depends on what circumstances are, especially what kind of person it is. But there are some things that are deep into any person, whether you're right wing or left wing or whether you're religious or non-religious. Um, let's say everybody loves their family. Everybody wants that their children get a good future. That is a good start. You know, you, you bring it down to personal level. So that is try to understand why, where the person comes from and what is, what is the reason that they don't want to believe it. And I think often it is fear. It is just, as I said earlier, you know, with the person going to the doctor, you know, if you fear that you might have some kind of deadly disease, you don't really want to go to the doctor because he might tell you that you have a deadly disease, right? And that's the same here. So a lot of people, I think they know deep inside that 
if all these scientists say this, climate change must be true, but they, they feel this is so big and so overwhelming that by just denying it and just, you know, live the next year without thinking about it and, and still go on, on, on your holiday to the tropical island, then it, it will some kind of magically go away. And I think in that case, it helps to explain to people that we can actually solve this. I mean, we, we cannot avoid all climate change because it is already going on, but we are still in time to avoid the worst of climate change and that we have all those knowledge and all those techniques and that it brings a lot of extra advantages. Um, look, look, for instance, that if you compare the amount of people, if, I think in the US there's 50,000 people that still work in the coal industry. And if you compare that to all those hundreds of thousands of new jobs that are created in, in the solar and, and wind industry, that is just only from, from the perspective of employment, it would already be a good idea. So forget about your whole environmental argument. Just look at the economy and, and employment. And I think most people recognize the importance of innovation, of, often, you know, government-triggered innovation, projects like, you know, NASA, let's have a man walk on the moon. We're still using knowledge that was created on those days. I mean, actually, a lot of our economy, you know, all the computers and everything, is derived from these kind of huge investment processes and changing the, the economy. And maybe a last thought here, we've seen so many changes. If I, if I look at my life, you know, I'm 55 now. When I grew up, you know, there was one telephone in the home on a landline. And that was together with, I think, the radio. That was all the technology that we had in the house. And if you look now, you know, we have internet, we have mobile phones. And so we have been completely changing infrastructure and the economy in, in a way that would have been unimaginable by then. And yeah, this is just the next step. Um, now we need to do this. People are already accepting electric vehicles, which only five years ago was a kind of exotic thing, you know? Now, you know, you see them driving everywhere. So those kind of changes can go relatively quickly. And generally we, we get better from those kind of changes. It's not something to be afraid of. Embrace this new economy. It will be more fair. It will be more green. It will be more healthy. It will be better. It will be an exciting journey. So yeah, those are the kind of positive things that you can mention when you, when you talk about climate change. I get excited about it when I think of all the, all the innovation and all the creativity that is launched to tackle this. And what, one last thought here. I always wonder if I think about my own use, you know, a lot of my political ideas and the way that I see society was probably influenced by the pop music I was listening to. And I'm so surprised. There are some songs about, you know, climate change and environment, but it's so little. And it's, uh, where are the artists? So that's, that's why I started a third Twitter account. It's quite small. It's, it's just 4,000 uh, followers and, and it doesn't follow anybody, anyone itself. It's called Art for Our Planet. And that is specifically focusing on what artists are doing to create more awareness. And uh, I, I should spend more time on it. I, I hope to develop this in a bigger initiative. But that's also all about communicating and convincing people that this is serious and you should be part of this and that there's also a lot of positive sides to it. That's very interesting. So it does lead into the last question we ask all of our guests, which is, you know, what are the resources that you rely on for your information about climate change and planetary security? And what would you recommend to our listeners? I think, you know, your, your three Twitter accounts sound, uh, sound like a good place to start, but what else might you recommend for folks? And we can 
make sure we post links to it on the website. I would say inform yourself. There's so much information out there, starting with newspapers. I think The Guardian is absolutely the best on environmental issues. But also, let's say in, in the US, the serious newspapers like New York Times and Washington Post, etc. They they report a lot about it. You can follow on social media, on any form of social media. And you can follow, uh, let's say, the, the big NGOs in this field. So I already mentioned the Fridays for Future movements. You can also think about uh, 350.org or all kinds of, you know, major NGOs. It could, could be anything from WWF to, to Greenpeace or, or any taste in between. You can follow some people like, you know, Bill McGibbon has been for many, many decades uh, been been active in this field. Or you could look at Naomi Klein if you look more at, let's say, how society should change, but the impact of the market economy has been on climate change and where the, where the solutions lie. I think there's a lot available on YouTube. You have to look at what are normally the sources where you spend time on. I mean, even on something like Instagram, you know, where, where normally we go to to see, you know, pictures of cats and dogs or whatever you want to see on Instagram. There's also accounts that are really dedicated to this. And then you can go, of course, more, you know, if you really want to dive deeper in, into it and really want to, to read books, which, which I would recommend. I'm just talking on top of my head now, but the, the book of Wallace Wells, for instance, I've got the title now on where it really describes what is going on. If you read that book, it is just so scary. And I've read it. I recognize pr practically everything from what I know. I think it's all correct. It's all well documented. If you really want to be scared for what's going on there, but there's many more books that are more towards the, the solutions. Uh, so George Monbiot, for instance, in the UK, he wrote, for instance, two books, which basically a collection of articles and blogs that he had written on how did we get into this mess, which describes the problem. And then a second book, how do we get out of this mess? He's very good on these issues. So yeah, another good name to, uh, to follow. I mean, the only thing I was thinking about as we got to the end was whether or not there are big things, like if people are interested in tracking the planetary security initiative or movement or things like that, are there any big like UN summits or things where you sort of, you know, track whether this issue is getting traction and things like that or anything they should be on the lookout for coming up in the next couple of years? I think there's actually room for an initiative to do more in this uh, in this field, take it a bit more away from the hard security, but still keep the security and the climate lens or the planetary lens. So in maybe in another form, something new might might pop up. I still I believe there's still a still a need for it, and and maybe it should move closer to more development cooperation kind of thing. And that sounds a bit like you know giving aid, but I mean it more like really cooperating with uh, with the with the global south. So I think there's room to develop something new there. I might someday pick that up if I if I feel like it. But there's not something like there's now the big new next thing that you have to look at. We we just have to the main thing is of course the mitigation part which is where I normally don't focus on too much, but that is the main thing. And then, yeah, then all, all different aspects of the adaptation, sometimes from a security perspective or sometimes from other perspectives. It just seems like there should be more going on there. Well, Alex, thanks so much for spending some time talking with us about your work today. It's really been an interesting perspective. I think when a lot of people think about climate security, they think about it in very different ways, but your focus on planetary security and your work has brought a different perspective that I think is certainly catching on from the human dimension, right? Understanding the ways in which all of Earth's natural systems and human systems are connected together and, and what's at stake for making sure that they get into balance sometime here. So thanks very much. We really appreciate it. And we look forward to talking to you again. 
Thank you, Sarah. It was a pleasure to join.